This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love music here on the show, and we love history. And that's why this is our favorite segment. And Jesse brings us This Week in Music History. This Week in Music History, Johnny Cash makes his debut on the U.S. Country Chart with Cry, Cry, Cry. Made it to number 14. Everybody knows where you go when the sun goes down. I think you only live to see the lights of town. I wasted my time when I would try, try, try. Cause when the lights have lost their glow, you cry, cry, cry. The early success of the song led to a featured spot on the Louisiana Hayride Tour and kicked off the career of Johnny Cash in the process. And in 2010, Willie Nelson was arrested for possession of six ounces of marijuana found in his tour bus while traveling from Los Angeles to Texas. Roll me up and smoke me when I die. And if anyone don't like it, just look up in the eye. I didn't come here and I ain't leaving, so don't sit around and cry. Just roll me up and smoke me when I die. Released after paying bail of $2,500, the prosecutor supported not sentencing Nelson, but suggested instead a $100 fine and told Nelson that he would have him sing Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain for the court. And in 1997, Kenny G set a world record when he held a note on his saxophone for 45 minutes and 47 seconds. The record has since been broken by Giovanni Escalante, who held a note for one hour, 30 minutes, and 45 seconds using a technique that allows him to blow and breathe at the same time. 1964, the Shangri-Las went to number one on the U.S. Singles Chart with Leader of the Pack. Is she really going out with him? Well, there she is. Let's ask her. Betty, is that Jimmy's ring you're wearing? Mm-hmm. Gee, it must be great riding with him. Is he picking you up after school today? Mm-mm. By the way, where'd you meet him? The song is about a girl named Betty who isn't allowed to date a biker named Jimmy. As Jimmy rides away on his motorcycle, he crashes and dies. And born this week in 1943, Randy Newman. In 1997, he held a U.S. number two single, Short People. He was once called the greatest songwriter alive by Paul McCartney. Since the 80s, Newman has worked mostly as a film composer in scores like Toy Story, Bugs Life, and Monsters, Inc. The Beatles went to number one on the U.S. singles chart with their 26th release in the United States. Come Together became the 18th U.S. number one single.
1955, Tennessee Ford's 16 Tons hits number one for the first of eight weeks. Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in depth. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. It's a song about a coal miner based on life in coal mines in Kentucky. I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine. I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine. I loaded 16 tons of number nine coal. And the straw boss said, well, to bless my soul, you load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. It was written and recorded by Merle Travis in Hollywood in 1946. You load 16 tons, and what do you get? You get another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Ford's version of the song was inducted into the Library of Congress. Over the years, the song's been covered by Elvis, B.B. King. Some people say a man is made out of mud. Johnny Cash. A poor man's made out of muscle. And, and many blood. others. Muscle and blood and skin and bone. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. And born this week in music history, 1942, the one and only Jimi Hendrix. He was self-taught and played an upside-down left-handed Stratocaster. Born in Seattle, Washington, Hendrix began playing guitar at the age of 15. In 1961, he enlisted in the U.S. Army and trained as a paratrooper in the 101st Airborne Division. Here's Little Wing, recorded by Hendrix in 1967. And that's This Week in Music History. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Well, she's walking through the clouds with a circus mind.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for one of our favorite regular recurring features, Radio Candy. And now, a reading by American poet Theodore Rothke. I knew a woman. I knew a woman, lovely in her bones. When small birds sighed, she would sigh back at them. Ah, when she moved, she moved more ways than one. The shapes a bright container can contain. Of her choice virtues, only God should speak. Or English poets who grew up on Greek. I'd have them sing in chorus, cheek to cheek. How well her wishes went. She stroked my chin. She taught me turn and counter-turn and stand. She taught me touch that undulant white skin. I nibbled meekly from her proffered hand. She was a sickle, I, poor I, the rake, coming behind her for her pretty sake. But what prodigious mowing we did make. Love likes a gander and adores a goose. Her full lips pursed, the errand don't to seize. She played it quick, she played it light and loose. My eyes, they dazzled at her flowing knees. Her several parts could keep a pure repose, or one hip quiver with a mobile nose. She moved in circles, and those circles moved. Let seed be grass, and grass turn into hay. I'm martyr to emotion, not my own. What's freedom for? To know eternity. I swear she cast a shadow white as stone. But who would count eternity in days? These old bones live to learn her wanton ways. I measure time by how a body sways. Please, people, tell me what kind of woman is this? (laughs) Please, somebody, please tell me what kind of woman is this? (laughs) You know me so in love with her I don't know which is which This is the one and only Buddy Guy Legendary blues man from Chicago The blues is the It's like the Ford car I don't care how it have changed since Henry Ford days, but it's still got that Ford right across the front of the back of it there somewhere. When I first met Eric Clapton, face to face, I said, man, that record you made, Strange Brew, I said, that just goes all to my toes. He said, sure, that's your lick. I said, what do you mean, your lick? He said, you listen to that thing you did with Junior Wells, that's where I got it from. So, okay. But I didn't let that go to my head and say, oh, Eric Clapton said I, I did that. Now I don't have to play that well no more. Shoot, mm-hmm. man, I got And then some of the kids will read it and say, I didn't know who he was until I read what Eric Clapton said. And then I say to myself, oh, shoot, I better go out here and show you I can hit a few licks because what Eric said don't mean nothing unless I can. You, you can tell me you're the best prize fighter in the world, but if I don't see you knock nobody out, you ain't proved it to me, <laughs> you know, so... That's the way I look at my music. I had no money. 
had no clothes I had no shelter From the bitter cold When you're too weak to walk He'll carry you through I'm living proof Jews and Muslims recently gathered together in prayer on the streets of Los Angeles to show the world peace is possible. I'm a Muslim. I was born a Muslim. I'm Jewish. I grew up in Israel. Where I came from, there's hardly any Jews. My father's a Holocaust survivor. Both my parents are Palestinian. We're trying to show the world that Jews and Muslims are friends. If you were to ask me like a couple months ago, give me 10 ways that Jews and Muslims could come together and coexist. What we're doing today would not have been on my list. I would have never expected to do this before. I have never had a Jewish friend. I was always reluctant to be their friend just because I didn't know how they felt about me. But I feel like I've made some of the closest friends in my life. Today, we are traveling around Los Angeles and praying Jews and Muslims side by side. That was the first time I prayed on the beach hearing them praying in Hebrew and we are praying in Arabic and hearing the ocean, the vastness of ocean around us. It's, it's a very different feeling and was, yeah. The first time that people prayed together, the first time I heard somebody say Allahu Akbar, I, I had like a physical reaction. We're like hardcore pro-Israel, anti-Arab in the past. So it's been a huge change for me. Allahu Akbar, of course, right? It was this moment of, of just joy and realization of praising God together. We were just so surprised that we could do this together, and it's very similar, and it was kind of like an aha moment that we're praying to the same God, and why aren't we doing this all the time together? It's been incredible how meaningful my prayer has become when it's more inclusive. One of the special things about Muslims and Jews praying side by side in, in my experience is that I feel connected. There are many times when I'm praying among Jews only and, and I don't feel that. And today, there's a wholeness in my life that I don't generally feel. The most significant piece of, of what we're doing today to me is that we're praying in public. We've planned a whole day around this idea of two faiths, one prayer. We have five different stops throughout L.A. And then you start the Shema after he says, La ilaha illallah. Got it. We're illustrating to the world that Jews and Muslims can pray in a meaningful way, side by side. People around us will see that. And if nothing else, they'll wonder. And it, it just plants the seed of hope and the seed of possibility of peace. I 
It felt like we made it when we hit City Hall, going from the beach, going through the park, and then ending up in this space, in this official space, and saying, look at us, we unrolled that rug, and we've made space for everyone. City Hall was the only prayer that we had opened up to the public, where anyone who wanted to could come. And I think everyone was a little nervous. We didn't know what to expect. We didn't know how many people would come. We didn't know who those people would be. And I think we pulled it off. That prayer just exceeded any expectations that I would ever have. Turning around and seeing so many people behind us instead of five to ten people, it was like... You said like 60 or so maybe, right? Yeah. All around us. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's so many people. How great would it be if we could come together in prayer and it wouldn't have to be because people are killing each other. Grant us courage to walk. Grant us courage to walk. This righteous path. This righteous path. Praying side by side. Praying side by side. And yearning together for peace. And yearning together for peace. This is Radio Candy. Sounds that soothe the soul on Our American Stories. Yes, I understand that every life must end. Uh-huh. As we sit alone, I know someday we must go. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm a lucky man to count on both hands the ones I love Some folks just have one you know, Others they've got none oh. Stay with me oh, Let's just breathe Practiced are my sins, never gonna let me win. Under everything, just another human being. This is Our American Stories, and this story comes to us from Michael T. Powers, the owner of a video production company, a youth pastor, and the author of the book Heart Touchers, life-changing stories of faith, love, and laughter, which includes the following story. Every year, Michael's hired by an eighth-grade class to capture their trip to Washington, D.C., and in the year 2000, their last stop was at the Marine Corps War Memorial, which is the largest bronze statue in the world and depicts one of the most famous photographs in history. 
It's of the five Marines and one Navy corpsman who raised the American flag at the top of Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima, Japan, during World War II. And here's Michael with what happened next. So over 100 students and a chaperones piled off the buses and headed towards the memorial. I noticed a solitary figure at the base of the statue, and, and as I got closer, he looked at me and he asked, So what's your name, and where are you guys from? I told him my name was Michael Powers and that we were from Clinton, Wisconsin. Hey, I am a cheesehead too. Come, gather around, cheeseheads, and I will tell you a story. James Bradley just happened to be in Washington, D.C. to speak at the memorial the following day. He was there that night because he wanted to say goodnight to his dad, who had previously passed away and whose image is part of the statue. He was just about to leave when he saw the buses pull up. I videotaped him as he spoke to us, and I received his permission to share what he said from my videotape. See, it's one thing to tour the incredible monuments filled with history in Washington, D.C., but it's quite another to get the kind of insight that we received that night. When we had all gathered around, he reverently began to speak. Here are his words from that night. My name is James Bradley, and I'm from Anago, Wisconsin. My dad is on that statue, and I just wrote a book called Flags of Our Fathers, which is number five on the New York Times bestseller list. It's the story of the six boys that you see behind me. Six boys raised that flag. The first guy putting the pole in the ground, his name is Harlan Block. See, Harlan was an all-state football player. He enlisted in the Marine Corps with all the senior members of his football team. They were off to play another type of game, a game called war. But it didn't turn out to be a game. Harlan, at the age of 21, died with his intestines in his hands. I don't say that to gross you out. I say that because there are people who stand in front of this statue and they talk about the glory of war. You guys need to know that most of the boys in Iwo Jima were 17, 18, and 19 years old. He pointed to the statue. You see this next guy? That's Rene Gagnon from New Hampshire. If you took his helmet off at the moment this photo was taken and you looked in the webbing of that helmet, you would find a photograph. A photograph of his girlfriend. He put it there for protection because he was scared. He was 18 years old. Boys won the Battle of Iwo Jima. Boys, not old men. The next guy here, the third guy in this tableau, was Sergeant Mike Strank. Mike is my hero. In fact, he was the hero of all these guys. They called him the old man because he was so old. He was already 24. When Mike would motivate his boys in training camp, he didn't say, let's go kill the enemy or let's go die for our country. He knew he was talking to boys. Instead, he would say, You guys do what I say, and I will get you home to your mothers. The last guy on this side of the statue is Ira Hayes, a Pima Indian from Arizona. Ira Hayes walked off of Iwo Jima. He went into the White House with my dad. President Truman told him, Son, you're a hero. He told reporters later, How can I feel like a hero when 250 of my buddies hit the island with me and only 27 of us walked off alive. 
So think about this. You, you take your class at school, maybe 250 of you, spending a year together, having fun, doing everything together. And then all 250 of you hit the beach, but only 27 of your classmates walk off alive. That was Ira Hayes. He had images of horror in his mind. Ira Hayes died dead drunk, face down at the age of 32, 10 years after this picture was taken. The next guy, as we go around the statue, is Franklin Sowsley from Hilltop, Kentucky, a fun-loving hillbilly boy. His best friend, who's now 70 years old, he told me, yeah, you know, we took two cows up on the porch of the Hilltop General Store, and then we strung wire across the stairs so that those cows couldn't get down. And then we fed them Epsom salts. Man, those cows, they crapped all night. Yeah, he was a fun-loving hillbilly boy. But Franklin died on Iwo Jima at the age of 19. And when the telegram came to tell his mother that he was dead, it went to the Hilltop General Store. And a barefoot boy ran that telegram up to his mother's farm. And the neighbors, they could hear her scream all night and into that next morning. And the neighbors lived a quarter of a mile away. The next guy, as we continue to go around the statue, is my dad, John Bradley from Anago, Wisconsin, where I was raised. My dad lived until 1994, but he would never give interviews. When Walter Cronkite's producers or the New York Times would call, we were trained as little kids to say, No, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. My dad's not here. He's in uh, Canada fishing. No, uh, no, there's no phone there, sir. No, no, we, we don't know when he's coming back. My dad never fished or even went to Canada. Usually he was sitting right there at the table eating his Campbell's soup. But we, we had to tell the press that he was out fishing. He didn't want to talk to the press. You see, my dad didn't see himself as a hero. Everyone thinks these guys are heroes because they're in a photo and a monument. My dad knew better. He was a medic. John Bradley from Wisconsin was a caregiver. In Iwo Jima, he probably held over 200 boys as they died. And when boys died in Iwo Jima, they writhed and they screamed in pain. When I was a little boy, my third grade teacher told me that my dad was a hero. When I went home and told my dad that, he looked at me and he said, I want you always to remember that the heroes of Iwo Jima are the guys who did not come back. Did not come back. So that's the story about six nice young boys. Three died on Iwo Jima and three came back as national heroes. Overall, 7,000 boys died on Iwo Jima in the worst battle in the history of the Marine Corps. My voice is giving out and so I will end here. Thank you all for your time. We were stunned. Suddenly, the monument wasn't just a big old piece of metal with a flag sticking out of the top. It came to life before our eyes with the heartfelt words of a son who did indeed have a father who was a hero. Maybe not a hero in his own eyes, but a hero nonetheless. And thank you for that reading, Michael. And boy, the class, what a lucky class to bump into James Bradley and hear that story. Bringing life to his statue, real life. James Bradley's book, Flags of Our Fathers, well, it became a fantastic hit for Clint Eastwood. 
by the same name, of course. Imagine those numbers. 250 boys hit the beaches. 27 survive. It's unimaginable. And we don't just bring you these stories on Memorial Day or Veterans Day. They come to you year-round because you need to hear them. We all need to hear them. This is our American stories. Michael Powers' story. James Bradley's story and his father's. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the music of Vince Guaraldi, and that is the soundtrack, of course, to a Charlie Brown's Christmas. Charlie Brown's Christmas, well, it's my little girl's favorite. It's my favorite. Heck, it's America's favorite. And we're about to bring you a story about how a Charlie Brown's Christmas almost didn't come to be. And it's brought to you by Norma Zimdahl, herself a terrific performer and composer. And all of our art segments will be brought to you by her because she has a deep appreciation as an artist about free enterprise, property rights, and intellectual property, and how the freedoms that we have in this country have created our great art that's loved worldwide. And now to the story. It seems now almost inconceivable to think of a holiday season without this classic cartoon. But the story of how a Charlie Brown Christmas came to be is itself a classic American story, or more accurately, how it almost didn't come to be. Charles Schultz, the show's creator, had some fundamental ideas about the 30-minute Christmas special. One of them had to do with a reading from the King James Bible's version of the Gospel of Luke. It turns out that as far back as 1965, network bosses, advertising executives on Madison Avenue, and even a few of Schultz's own artistic collaborators thought a Bible reading in a cartoon might just turn off a nation populated with Christians and in a Christmas special, no less. 
But before that tale gets told, it is worth telling the story of how this national treasure was conceived. It didn't spring from the mind of its creators, but rather from its sponsors. Here is producer Lee Mendelson on how things all got started. In 1965, in April, Time Magazine ran a cover story with the Peanuts characters. And a few weeks after that, Coca-Cola called through their agency, McCann Erickson, and they said, have you and Mr. Schultz ever thought, and Mr. Melendez, have you ever thought of doing a Charlie Brown Christmas show? And I lied, and I said, oh, absolutely, we've been thinking about it, and blah, blah, blah. This was a Thursday, and they said, well, we have to make a decision on Monday. Could you send us an outline of the show? This was the Thursday. So I called Mr. Schultz, and I called Mr. Melendez, and I said, I think... I have good news and bad news. The good news is I think I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. The bad news is we have to write it tomorrow. So we all got together up in Santa Rosa and came up with an outline for the show and sent it down there on Monday, and they bought it. Schultz and his creative team didn't have a lot of time. Better still, they had some really interesting ideas, some innovative ideas, ideas that didn't make the network suits very happy. First and foremost, there was no laugh track, something unimaginable in that era of television. Schultz thought that the audience should be able to enjoy the show at its own pace, without being cued to laugh. CBS created a version of the show with a laugh track added, just in case Schultz changed his mind. Luckily, he didn't. The second big battle was waged over voiceovers. The network executives were not happy that the Schultz team had chosen to use children to do the voice acting rather than employing adults. Indeed, in this remarkable world created by Schultz, we never hear the voice of a single adult. The executives also had a problem with the jazz soundtrack by Vince Guaraldi. They thought the music would not work well for a children's program and that it distracted from the general tone. They wanted something more, well... Young. Here again is TV producer Lee Mendelson on choosing Vince Guaraldi for the special. I wanted to use different kinds of music. Uh, we knew we'd use traditional Christmas music, and we would use some Beethoven, because Schroeder played Beethoven. But when we did the documentary, we had hired a fellow named Vince Guaraldi to do the music on the documentary, and I thought it might be fun to, to use some of that music on the Christmas show. And we called Vince, and um, uh, he wrote an opening title song for the show. And I remember I thought maybe we should put some words on it, and I just wrote, scribbled some words down on an envelope. Christmas time is here, happiness, and so forth, and never thought much about it. And so the music became a, a mix of the, and I think the music was critical to its acceptance. And um, we thought of different elements about the Christmas tree and so forth and put it all down in the outline. And the outline pretty much is the way the show eventually evolved. And, um, but I think that the Guaraldi music was crucial to its success because that was the first time a cartoon had used jazz, had used adult music. That raised a, a, a certain level. And last but not least, there was one scene that really irritated the suits at CBS. If you remember, Charlie Brown brings that really ugly little tree out to the center of the stage. Everyone's despondent. And Linus comes in to save the day. The kids are bickering about the true meaning of Christmas. You remember the scene. And in this scene, what really annoyed the the suits at CBS was the reading of the gospel according to Luke, 
verses 8 through 14. Let's take a listen to this scene. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Oh, when CBS executives saw the final product, they were horrified. Again, no laugh track, a jazz soundtrack. Adults not doing the voices, kids doing it, and oh my goodness, a reading from the actual Bible. They believed the special was going to be a complete flop. They wanted Schultz to take out the Bible scene. They wanted to change the music. They wanted all these changes, but Schultz knew better. Schultz didn't relent. He didn't acquiesce. Here again is TV producer Lee Mendelson on the moment he showed CBS this program. And I went back very with great fear to CBS and I showed it to him. It was a week before it was to go on the air and they hated it. The two top people just hated it. They said, you know, the, it's too slow and it's very religious. In those days, that was a big deal, you know, back in the 60s. And it's not particularly fun. And I was just devastated, you know, because I, I didn't think it was, it was that good either. And the head guy there said, well, we're going to have to run it. It's scheduled, but unfortunately, you know, there probably aren't going to be any more. And then uh, they, had, they said, there's a guy from Time Magazine downstairs that wants to look at it. And they said, but we don't dare show it to him. It's, we don't like it. I said, well, it's going to be worse if you don't show it to him. So we go down, and there's a fellow in there and me, and we sit and we watch it. And he doesn't say a word, and he gets up and leaves. So I come home absolutely with my tail between my legs, and I figure we are doomed. The half-hour special aired on Thursday, December 9, 1965, preempting the Munsters and following Gilligan's Island. To the surprise of the executives, 50% of the televisions in the United States tuned in to the first broadcast. Here, Lee Mendelson talks about the positive reaction they started getting before and after the show aired. day before the show, Time Magazine comes out, and this fellow wrote the most glowing review you could imagine, said it should run forever which shocked all of us. Then it goes on the air and gets like a 45 share, and in those days there were only three networks. I think we had half the United States tune in who had television. And that Monday the CBS fellow called up and he said, um, well, we're going to buy five, four more Charlie Brown shows, but I wanted you to know that my aunt in New Jersey didn't like it either. That was his, that was his justification. The cartoon was a critical and commercial hit. It won an Emmy and a Peabody. Linus's recitation was hailed by critic Harriet Van Horn of the New York World Telegram, who wrote, quote, Linus's reading of the story of the nativity was, quite simply, the dramatic TV highlight of the season. A Charlie Brown's Christmas is equaled only, perhaps, by the 1966 How the Grinch Stole Christmas in its popularity among young and old alike. 
Thank God the Grinch-like executives at CBS chose to air the special back in 1965, despite their misgivings. If it had been left to their gut instincts, we would have had one less national treasure to cherish come Christmas time. This is Our American Stories, the story of how Charlie Brown's Christmas special almost didn't happen. our American stories and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show and that's love stories death stories, war stories stories about our history and our nation's history stories about sports, the arts you name it and we talk about law enforcement a lot and our nation's military, the men and women who serve this country and mostly almost uniformly with honor and with dignity and today we're joined by a local his book is Confessions of an Undercover Agent Adventures, Close Calls and the toll of a double life, and Charlie Spillers joins us now. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Lee, thanks for having me on. Let's talk about what we always do when we start this show. Let's talk about beginnings. You were born in Louisiana, and by the way, my wife and I got married in New Orleans, so we love this part of the country. Of all the cities in the country to get married, this Jersey boy found himself in the heart of Cajun country, the capital of Cajun country. My wife was born and raised in Biloxi. And so the home city of Biloxi is New Orleans, as you know. Talk about how that rich Cajun history formulated and formed and helped inform your life. Yeah, I briefly wrote about that in the book, uh, about the fact that my uh, great-grandparents, who lived near New Iberia, Louisiana, couldn't understand or speak English, only Cajun French. So my parents would have to interpret. And whenever I'd stay in summers with my grandparents, the neighborhood ladies would come over and join my grandmother for coffee on hot summer days and gossip. And sometimes uh, villagers would drop by and talk to my grandfather, who was a renowned hunter and trapper. And they would lapse into French at times. And I would watch. I couldn't understand it, but I became fascinated by their body language and movements. And I realized that later on, when I was working undercover, I was had learned an early lesson about how people are reacting to things by watching the body language. So that was a key part of helping me survive and succeed in later years, besides the fact that it's a rich, rich culture. You bet. And by the way, what people say and how people think and feel, the dissonance is usually only understood by sight. Right. And so it's, that's an important lesson you learned. By the way, I want to quote one thing from the book. You said, in addition to Cajun, French, and Cajun hospitality, their home was filled, and of course you're talking about your grandparents, their home was filled with the delicious aromas and tastes of Cajun cooking. Game stews made with thick brown roux, steaming chicken and sausage gumbos, spicy jambalaya, crawfish etouffee, and crawfish bisque, and I'm getting hungry already, Charlie. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about your dad. He was a tool pusher in the oil fields. But his work helped shape your life because, well, tool guys, oil guys, oil field guys move a lot. 
And so you moved a lot. I want to quote you from your book again and then hear your response. I was always the new student, the outsider, the stranger walking hesitantly into a classroom filled with kids who'd grown up together. How did this help you become the person you are today? Well, you can imagine years later when I'm trying to find some way to infiltrate criminal groups, I'm walking into people that I don't know, complete strangers. There's that same sense of dread and and being anxious about it, only more so undercover. But exposed to those experiences early on, about once every three years, moving towns, new schools and all that, it helped me learn to adapt to new situations, to find ways to become friends with people. And so that was a broadening experience, very broadening experience for me. Yeah, stepping into new situations, you either had to learn to adapt or there was going to be a lot of suffering, I would assume, Charlie. Let's talk about the next important uh, chapter and phase in your life, and that's the U.S. Marine Corps. Talk about those weeks in Paris Island, because in order to make the Corps, you got to make it through the cut and the tough circumstances at Paris Island. How did that help shape your, your life? Paris Island was hard. It was a hard 13 weeks, and it changed my life. I became part of something that was bigger than me, and uh, that's where I learned that no matter how difficult something might seem or how impossible, you can do it. You can achieve things you think are impossible, and that has carried me through all my careers as in law enforcement as a federal prosecutor, later on as uh, the uh, Department of Justice at that shape of rock. All these difficult things, they don't phase me anymore. I know they might be difficult and hard, but I know some way I can do it. For instance, in the Marines, if somebody says, take that hill, you don't say, well, I don't have enough men. I don't have enough equipment. We're tired. We're worn out. Whatever it takes, you take that heel, and that's carried me through. And I'm sure other Marines do. Yeah, no doubt. And some of our heroes on this show, we did an hour on Fred Smith, who, of course, built up FedEx. And he said, look, everything I needed to know, I didn't learn in business school. I didn't learn in college. I learned it in the U.S. Marine Corps. And you know when Fred's saying that, right? that he means it. It's not just a, a platitude. Now, let's talk about Vietnam. You were there. I think what people always wonder is, most Americans have experienced Vietnam through two or three movies. Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, uh, so on and so forth. Right. Uh, talk about your experience in Vietnam, what you saw, and what that was like. Well, I was there in 66, and uh, we were engaged in, I was a Marine squad leader. We were engaged in what I would call, describe light combat. Of course, if you're killed or grievously wounded, any combat is terrible. But we were involved in firefights with V.C., ambushes, and things like that. One thing that I don't think people understand about combat, at least, for instance, in Vietnam, is how it wears you down. Sleeping in two-hour segments and then on watch two hours from your foxhole. Sleep in two hours, then on watch. And then all day, you're up, you're patrolling, and that next night you might be out on ambushes, you're eating sea rations, You're not getting as much food. You're losing weight. You're tired all the time. You're worn down. And when you're out in the bush, you're carrying all this equipment. You're loaded down with it. You're exhausted. You're dirty all the time. It takes stamina. It takes endurance. And it takes that will not to just sit down and say, I quit. 
You've got to keep going. And then, of course, you have uh, sometimes boredom, and then all of a sudden, uh, a terrifying moment, the uh, ambush erupts, gunfire just cracks by your head. And it's after that that the adrenaline dump goes away. And after that, when you start feeling like, oh, my God, you know, that was, oh, that was close, or, or you start feeling things, but you're so busy in combat, you don't have time to feel that. And hold that thought, Charlie. We'll be right back to talk about life after Vietnam and after the Marine Corps. We're talking to Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're joined today by Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And we were just talking about Charlie's upbringing in Cajun country, joining the Marine Corps, and experiencing firsthand the stresses and boredom of combat duty in Vietnam. And Charlie, you came home from Vietnam, and you meet a girl. And thank goodness, I mean, what would happen to us if we didn't? We'd be living under a bridge and drinking, most men. And then you tried to live an ordinary life after meeting your bride. You tried to live a domesticated life and settled down and joined the phone company, of all things. How did that work out for you? Uh, and that was fine. It was Southern Bell Telephone Company in North Carolina. And uh, I was a technician, and it was a very, very good job. But after about a year, I got to missing the excitement that I'd found in the Marines. And also, I was also pulled by a sense of duty. So I, I applied for a job in law enforcement. I took a job as a uniform uh, police officer, making less pay than I was making with the phone company. And my work day went from a regular five-day work week to a six-day work week. That's without overtime. Simply because I wanted to, you know, experience that adventure and excitement and also sense of duty of doing something meaningful so uh and by the way your wife had to be thrilled with this decision <laughs> because that's what all wives want they want you to be away more and make less lee the people who have read the book so many of them had said your wife is the real hero and for those who have read the book you see what she went through you see some encounters she had that were uh, terrifying he really was and is the hero of the book. Yep. And let's talk about Baton Rouge because this is where you cut your teeth in law enforcement. And it doesn't take long for you to get a certain specific role and job inside the Baton Rouge Police Department, and that is intelligence. So this right. begins your life into this space called undercover. Right. Exactly. I was in uniform patrol for two months. And, uh, the captain who was uh, in charge of the intelligence division asked to come see me at my apartment, at our apartment. And he came over, we had coffee, and uh, he told me he was head of the intelligence unit. He asked me if I would volunteer to go undercover. I had no idea what that meant, but it sounded exciting. So I said, oh, yeah. And he said, well, don't report back to your ship and stay away from police headquarters. 
That started my 10-year undercover career, you know, six years with the Baton Rouge PD and uh, my first five years with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics later on. So during that first six or eight months, I was immersed as an undercover officer in intelligence, and my job was to infiltrate the burglary rings, safecracker rings, just the criminal groups, and therefore, my office became the local bars. There were two or three local bars where some of those groups hung out, and that was basically their headquarters. And so my nights would be spent there, and we would all gather at a you know, particular table or tables pulled together, and normally the bar owner, you know, knew everybody, and the dancers, bar girls would come over and sit during their break. It was all a social group, but it was also a criminal group. And so uh, usually uh, I'd get home maybe 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, or I'd get home a day or two later after I went out, and that was the thing that was uh, hard, especially hard on my wife. When I left to go out, she never knew if I'd be back in two hours writing some reports or if I'd be back uh, late that night or early in the morning or two days later. She never knew. You could never plan anything. I never knew. Yeah, and I would assume that, and you indicate this in the book, you know, if you're a member of the police department, you get to do the cookouts with the police department. You get to hang out in the in the streets with the police department, do the community building, the community relations. You're wearing the uniform. Folks get to know you. And here, you get none of these what I call social benefits of being in the police department. You're a lone wolf, in a, in a sense. You've got a, maybe a couple of other guys you work with. You report. Some of the cops might even, not even know that you're undercover. Talk about what that strain was like on your wife and obviously on you, but I think more, look, you picked the profession. So in some respects, you are hardwired for stress. You're hardwired for this. But, you know, the average wife is not hardwired for this any more than the average military wife whose husband goes off for three years or a year to Iraq or to, or to Germany in World War II or to, North, or to Korea. Um, talk about your wife, because it, it did really interest me in the book, the, that her role in this. Yeah, uh, we couldn't let our neighbors know I was a police officer. Even though they were good, fine people and they were trustworthy, you, an undercover agent gets burned down normally through someone trusted, telling a trusted friend, who tells a trusted friend and a trusted friend, next thing you know, it's out on the street that, hey, there's an undercover agent that's working and uh, uh, with penetrated such and such a group. Or if you're in a small town and you're the stranger in town and it gets out, there's an undercover agent in the area, all fingers point at you. So that's your biggest threat, one of your biggest threats of compromise. So she couldn't tell neighbors. And sometimes we'd have a cover story about how we... You know, I made my money at the time. She was working, I believe, as a secretary about how I made my money. And we couldn't go out together. I mean, we might go out to the grocery store together every now and then, perhaps to a movie every now and then, but we had to be very careful. And I describe in the book how a couple times when we went out, we encountered criminals I was working on. And I couldn't let them see my wife and I together because she looked straight. And it would be out of character for me to be with you. Know, what are you doing with her? Yeah. I remember in one particular instance in the book, you sort of just drift away from your wife. She sort of gets it. And she walks away and goes to the movie theater. And you walk in another direction. 
and then you get back together hours later. Yeah, exactly. I, when I saw him and we were walking across the street to the entrance to the theater, all of a sudden I whispered, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. And then I veered off to the bad guys and she just kept, I mean. She knew just what to do. She knew what to do, but she didn't know it through training. She knew it through instinct, instinct. and fear, Yeah, which she handled well. And if she sees you afraid or is, or you sensing fear, she knows that there's something up right. and just move. Right, like when the, uh, when the uh, drug dealer came to our house and saw her out back, and he pointed to him. We were living in a mobile home. He pointed to it, that home, and he said, hey, does Mike live there? And I was using the name Mike. Right. And she immediately knew what that was. And she was out back with our little two- or three-year-old son, you know, at the little playground. And she said, oh, I don't know who lives there. And so she got Terry, our son, and she went off in a different direction. She went around out of sight. Then she came back and looked. She didn't see him. Here's what she was thinking. I had gone off to go to the convenience store. She was thinking, Charlie would be back. I need to go warn him that this man's, I need to warn him. So even though she knew the danger was there, she rushed back to the, to the trailer, and I was head back inside. And she came inside, and she said, Charlie, Charlie. And she closed the door, and she was looking out the curtain. Charlie, Charlie, somebody's out there was asking for Mike. And I said, what? She said, yeah. And she told me, and I jumped up and grabbed my gun, and I went to the windows and started looking around all over, holding my gun. But at the same time, not only to you know defend and protect us, but at the same time thinking I've got to keep calm for her too. So I'm looking all over, and Finally, I go out, go out, and I say, lock the door behind me. Don't let anybody in but me. And I go out, and I walk around. Then I, I go back and say, I'll be back in a moment. I get in my car, and I, I go all over for 15, 20 minutes. I even park and watch cars because it's a threat. It's a threat, but I don't see anything. So finally, satisfied that, well, we're okay, I go back to the house, the trailer, and I go inside and say, look, everything's okay. Uh, I think we're all right. I go back to writing reports at the table and uh, of a recent buy, a drug buy or something. And she says, well, after a little while, I'm going to the store. So she leaves. And Terry, our son's in the bed sleeping, and there's a knock on the door after she left. And I go to the door, and I open the door, and I look down. It's the drug dealer, Ural. And he looks up at me, and he says, hey, Mike. What are you thinking then? Yep. Why all of a sudden is your heart and your mind doing then? Bam, bam, bam. So there were situations like that. And uh, she went through that, and it was terrifying for her. But she handled it well. And yes, she did. We're talking with Charlie Spillers, a man who has served the public in so many ways as a U.S. Marine in Vietnam, as an undercover cop for 10 years, and then later as a career federal prosecutor, and last as a Justice Department attache in Iraq when things were really hot. Charlie's book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. It's a must-read. And more with Charlie and his stories here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing our conversation with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and The Toll of a Double Life. And now let's get straight to one of the best stories in the book, and it's about a woman and a woman very close to you. Talk about her. That's my undercover partner with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, Sarah Neal. She and I worked together undercover in Jackson, pretending to be a Mississippi, pretending to be a couple to infiltrate heroin trafficking rings. When we were finished, I went down to the Gulf Coast and started driving a taxi cab as a cover to infiltrate the rings down that way. She went to South Mississippi. While she was in South Mississippi, an agent in North Mississippi asked Sarah to come and join him to do a heroin buy bust of four ounces of heroin. So Sarah drove up to Columbus, Mississippi, met the agent, and the drug dealer had told, the heroin dealer had told the agent, look, drive outside of Columbus on this narrow two-lane road, drive about 12 or 15 miles until you see my car parked on the shoulder of the road. And when you see my car, you park on the other shoulder of the road, and we'll do the deal in the middle of the road. And don't worry, don't worry. There are no houses around. Hardly anyone uses the road, and it's level there for a mile or two in both directions. If anybody, other cars on the road, we'll see them uh, in plenty of time. You know, So it's like being on the moon, it's remote and isolated. So that day, Sarah and her partner, Jerry Dittman, drove out in the undercover car. And all agents on surveillance had to stay back out of sight because of the road. So Sarah and Jerry were really on their own. And it was sleeting some that day. It was miserable, almost around time for Thanksgiving. And as they drove out that road, they saw the heroin dealer's car. They parked on the other side of the road. While Sarah waited in the undercover car, the agent, Jerry, got out and he met the heroin dealer in the middle of the road. He pulled out a $10,000 flash roll. The heroin dealer produced the four ounces. And when he did, the agent, Jerry, pulled out his gun and yelled, Police, you're under arrest, you're under arrest, hands up. And when he did, on the heroin dealer's side of the road, across the field, 75 yards away, was the heroin dealer's brother with a 30-30 rifle. And he had the undercover agent, Jerry Dittman, in his sights. And he had his finger on the trigger. And when Jerry yelled, police, the man pulled the trigger. Bam! Bam! And Jerry got hit. And he staggered in the road. Bam! The man kept shooting. Detman, Jerry Detman, staggering in the road. He couldn't see where the man was shooting from, but he could tell it was from a tree line. And Jerry started blindly just emptying his pistol toward the tree line. Pow, pow, pow. Meanwhile, the man shooting back. Bam, bam. Sarah Neal the undercover agent, is in the undercover car on the other side of the road. She's in relative safety. She could stay there, scrunch down, or get down, crouch behind the car. But instead, she saw her fellow agent staggering in the road. Bam! He got hit a second time. Sarah jumped out of the car without hesitating, ran around the front of the car with just her little Model 65 shot, 38, to her, her partner, she ran into the danger zone, the killing zone, and as she did, the heroin dealer in the road went for his gun, and Sarah popped off a shot. Pow! It hit the man in the hand. Sarah got to Jerry Debman, the agent, and as she did, bam! Jerry got shot a third time. The rifleman was shooting at both of them. Pow! Pow! Sarah grabbed Jerry, pulled him to her side of the road. They tumbled down an embankment, and when they got down there, 
Jerry rode over, flat on his back. Sarah scrambled up, watching the skyline with her gun for the bad guys. She looked over at Jerry, and she saw he was covered with blood. And she thought, he's going to die. I've got to get him to the hospital, or he's going to die. So without hesitating, she got down, she pulled him to his feet, and she started tugging him up the embankment, still holding her gun with one hand, and thinking the bad guys were up there. She got him to the top. The bad guys were gone. She got Jerry to the undercover car, and he was bleeding all over her. She put him down in the back seat, and he was bleeding over the back seat. And about that time, surveillance cars roared up and started fanning out for the bad guys. Sarah raced back to Columbus. She found the hospital. She took him into the emergency room. And the emergency rooms weren't equipped then like they were now. A nurse said, here, put him in this room right here. And they put him on a table. And the nurse said, let me go see if I can find a doctor anywhere in the hospital. And the nurse left. And Sarah was there along with Jerry bleeding. And as she was there after a couple of minutes, she heard hollering at the entrance that she'd come in. Somebody was hollering, ah, ah, Sarah stepped out of the room and she looked. And coming through the doors was a man holding his right hand. Help me, help me, help me, my hand, it hurts, help me. Yes, yes. It was the gunman she had shot in the road. The heroin dealer she had shot in the road. Help me. Sarah stepped back in the room, reached in her purse and got her gun and handcuffs, and she went out and arrested him. Yes, she arrested him. She put him on the floor of the emergency waiting room on his stomach. She knelt down and started handcuffing him behind his back. And as she did, he yelled, Don't put him on too tight. It hurts too bad. Don't put him on too tight. So she made sure she put him on. A tad too tight. Ah! The only one around was an elderly gentleman sitting there watching all this with big eyes like he was watching a movie. And Sarah bent over the man she had arrested, looked at him and said, Mister, Mister, would you watch him? Would you watch him? I need to get back to my partner. And if he moves just an inch, would you yell out? Would you do that? Yes, ma'am. So she went back with her partner. They found a doctor. Other agents flooded in from around the state. And... This happened about noontime, about midnight. Agents finally convinced Sarah to go get some rest because she had driven up that day, four-hour drive, been through this. Go, go find a motel room, get some rest. So she drove into downtown Columbus. It was sleeting. The lights were off. No cars were out. It looked like an abandoned town late at night. She found the Holiday Inn. There were only a few people there, and they put her in a back building, she double-locked the doors because the rifleman, the shooter, was still uh, loose. And she took a shower. And when she did, she took her gun to the shower with her and had it in there. Finally, she got in bed, maybe about 2 in the morning. Well, if that happened to you, would you go off right to a contented sleep? Well, she didn't either. She tossed and she turned. And finally, maybe a half an hour before daylight, she finally fell into an exhausted sleep, and at daylight, the phone next to the bed rang and woke her up. It was an agent at the hospital. She called in, left word where she was, and the agent said, Sarah, I've been, been here awake all night. Can you come relieve me? And Sarah Neal got up after a half hour sleep, and she got dressed. But the only clothes she had were those she had worn the day before because she thought she was going to be back in South Mississippi that night. So she put on jeans that were, had blood all over them, 
a blouse with blood all over it and a jacket with blood all over it. And she drove back to the hospital. Sarah Neal stayed at the hospital all day, oftentimes fighting to stay awake. That night, around 8 o'clock or so, she finally left, driving back to Columbia, to uh, South Mississippi. It was uh, 210 miles, a four-hour drive on the back roads. And the whole way, the whole way, she fought to stay awake at the wheel, still wearing those bloody clothes. You know what she did the next morning? Next morning, she got up and went back to work as an MBN agent. She later received an award from Parade Magazine, which used to be the, the popular supplement Sunday Papers, award as one of the 10 outstanding federal, state, and, law and, and local law enforcement agents in the nation. They flew her out to an award ceremony in uh, Los Angeles. But I love that story. I love that story because many people didn't know about it at the time, and they certainly didn't know about the details. And I love that story because, to me, that story is about the people we have in law enforcement today, the men and women in federal, state, and law enforcement today, that courage, that dedication that's exemplified by Sarah Neal and Jerry Debman. That's the kind of folks we have serving us today. And when we come back, more from Charlie Spillers, his terrific book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And, you know, Charlie, a lot of people know about the Italian mafia and the big city mafias of New York and Boston and, and Chicago, and we've seen countless movies about that kind of mafia. But you infiltrated a very different kind of mafia, the Dixie Mafia, which is a whole different animal. There's no city to hide in. There's lots of open land. People know each other. And everybody in these rural areas is tight-knit. But that's exactly why the Dixie Mafia was so successful. Right. And, of course, over several states, a, uh, it's a loose network that of criminals, career criminals, engaged in everything from auto theft to uh, armed robberies to, uh, and by armed robberies, normally they would pick out targets, like somebody living in a rural area or on the edge of a town who who reportedly has a lot of money in their safe or in their home, and they'll put on ski masks and do a home invasion. And what they, what they might do is something like this. Let's say there's a couple uh, Dixie Mafia people who live around Calhoun City, and they're well-known. And that's Mississippi. Right, Calhoun City, Mississippi, south of Oxford, very rural. Uh, they're well-known. But they happen to be talking with people in town, and somebody just mentions somebody who's spent a lot of money, and all of a sudden— They'll target that person. And what they'll do is maybe they'll call Dixie Mafia members in Oklahoma who will come down and do the actual hit, the actual home, in the robbery, and then they'll split up the money. Or somebody in Oklahoma or northeast Mississippi or somewhere else will see some kind of uh, scam target and then call others come do it, and they split split up. So they come together in these little tight-knit conspiracies to, to do things. Uh, and 
that most of the time they're facing rural understaffed law enforcement agencies and they're operating over a multi-state area. So they're hard to target. They're hard to work on. And they're also very dangerous. So in Northeast Mississippi was the auto theft capital of the U.S. It had a reputation nationwide among law enforcement agencies as being the area that had a lot of chop shops where they chop up stolen cars and stolen car rings, and they were Dixie Mafia-connected people. And so when our agency, I was with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, they came up with $10,000 of special funds that could be used for buying stolen cars. Uh, I volunteered. I was excited when I heard that. I volunteered to go up to northeast Mississippi to see if I could infiltrate them. And I had no idea how I would do it when I volunteered. But after I went up, I met two sisters, two big old girls that were real rough, who were cooperating. And they were on the edges of these groups. And they were cooperating. And they said, yeah, they would introduce me and vouch for me. Uh, but it's hard to break in. I need more than that. So I told the two girls, I said, well, look, here's what I want you to do for two weeks before I ever show up. I want you to just talk to people about me. Every now and then mention Mike. Oh, our man Mike down in Alabama, he's going to be coming up. Boy, he's so bad, he'll cut off your head and crap on your neck. And I said, wait, wait a minute. Don't tell them something that bad when I heard about it. Oh, my God. But anyway, they, so they <laughs> spread the story. They spread the story that I was, uh, I was a real criminal. I was big in uh, auto theft, and I was at a higher level because I thought what I needed to do, I couldn't come in as an auto thief because, you know, they would know too quickly, and they all know each other. I needed to come in at a higher level than the rest of them, like I'm a, some kind of boss in an organization. So I, as I came in, I came in as, like I said, a boss of a multi-state organization that helped dispose of stolen cars. And I still needed to break in, though. So I had the girls introduce me to the owner of a pawn shop who I knew was connected with these people. And uh, I showed up and said, hey, man, I'm Mike. Yeah, they told me you're okay. I can talk with you. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. They told me you're okay, too. I said, hey, uh, uh, I want to see if you might be interested in some TVs. My people took off a truckload of televisions. Don't, don't worry, don't worry. There's no heat around here. It was in another state. Uh, we've already gotten rid of it. But there's a couple TVs left over. I just want to get rid of them. Would you be interested? He looked at me real carefully, kind of scrutinized me, and then he said, well, what kind? How much? So then I knew it was okay. So we struck a deal. I quoted a price where they had to have been stolen. And so we arranged for me to deliver to him the next day after his business closed. So the next morning, I went to another town to Walmart, and I bought two brand-new TVs. And I left them in the box but stripped all the markings off so they couldn't be traced, you know, by the box, and then delivered those to him as uh, coming off the stolen shipment. He vouched for me, and a week later introduced me to two guys involved in auto thefts and burglaries, and I wind up dealing with them. In fact, one of them later showed me about 37 rifles they had stolen from a collector, real quality rifles that they won't unload. And they took me out in the country and showed them to me. And we took one of them up in AR-18, I think it was, and fired it several times and all that. But uh, later on, one night I was riding with the two criminals. And one of them said, hey, look, uh, my such and such, it was a relative of his, lives on that 
that hill up there in that house, uh, he's supposed to have about 100000 in his safe. Of course, he can't hide. He's hiding that from the government. Now, what we want to do is we want to rob it and get it, but even with ski masks, he didn't know it was us. So how about you doing it? But you see, that's the, that's yep. the way those folks are. Yep. But anyway, so I got, got involved with uh, infiltrating the uh, auto theft rings and uh, buying stolen vehicles from uh, car vets to um, tractor-trailer trucks. In fact, tractor-trailer truck just completely full of boxes of furniture from one of the furniture plants. Um, a brand-new BMW just stolen off the new car lot in Chicago 12 hours before and driven down. Nice deal for $2,200. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I got some real real bargains, but uh, that was exciting. Don't buy a used car from this man. <laughs> yeah, don't buy a used car from Whatever me. you do. Yeah, no warranty. And now, Charlie, let's talk a little bit about your life after a decade of working undercover. Your career really is remarkable. Because, Charlie, you ran every, every avenue of law enforcement. It's very rare to go from a, a cop to then Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. You were in quickly... You spent your time in undercover work, which is, I think, the most stressful and some of the most important work that can happen. And then you go over to the prosecutor's side, but not just any prosecutor. I mean, you end up in a U.S. attorney's office. So talk about that segue from being the guy on the street to the guy in the suit. And I, I've often in my life, I have a law degree, noticed sometimes there's a, a, a tension between the suits, the prosecutors, and the cops. Sometimes they like the suits, sometimes they don't like the suits. More often than not, I've seen very good relationships, but it's a very different mindset. And sometimes the cops aren't too happy that the prosecutors are giving them a hard time, but they want more evidence. They just need more evidence to make a case. And they're saying, nope, can't take it to, can't take it to trial. And I worked in a prosecutor's office for a summer. Can't take it to trial. Need more evidence. And the cops are going, damn it, got to go back. And so that's what I mean by the tension. Right. Talk about being on that other side. Now, you're the prosecutor, and the FBI is coming to you. You're at the U.S. attorney, and you're saying, we need more. We need more. Right, right. And, and I love doing that. Uh, my job was I was an OCDF prosecutor, Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force prosecutor, uh, targeting major uh, drug trafficking organizations and trying to take down, disrupt them and take down their hierarchy. And those investigations might last anywhere from six months to three years. And usually it's multiple uh, federal, state, and, and local investigators, FBI, DEA, Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, uh, some PD, SO officers. And I enjoyed and loved those investigations because here was a target, career criminal, oftentimes violent, that needed to be taken down. How do we do it? And we're working toward it. I think uh, the agents I worked with came to appreciate uh, my experience as in law enforcement and expertise in figuring out ways to make cases against those folks. And it's like one of the task force agents told me later, he said, man, I used to fuss and cuss. You would have us doing so much. I'd fuss and cuss, but I learned a lot and I learned how it should be done. And I learned that we keep on going until we can cut off those defense avenues of escape so that when we have the case and we go to court, it's what people think. Yeah, it's a federal case, meaning, no, they're not going to be able to get out of it because you thought of how they're going to attack the evidence. You thought of the reasons they're going to try to use to confuse the jury. We keep going till we got enough to get a conviction. And it's like a FBI agent and a state agent said when we were starting out a case, the FBI agent came over to start working with us on one of those cases. And the state agent said, um, 
well, you, you better get ready because for the next three years, you're not going to get much sleep. And that's about the way we, we worked. We used to tell folks we'd work from can to cane, can to cane. And there you have it, our interview with Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And you can catch this on OurAmericanNetwork.org if you want to share it with friends, with family members. All of our work is up there, and we've done any number of stories on law enforcement, on soldiers, and the life of the men and women who wear uniforms uh, serving our country. Charlie Spiller's story, what a terrific one, from undercover agent all the way to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We didn't even get to his time in Iraq when the whole place was blowing up, and he was an attache there. The guy just loved going into dangerous places, and he loved strapping on that uniform and a sidearm and taking care of folks. Thanks, Charlie, for the time and for a life well served. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Charlie Spiller's Story. Story.